I'll invite you to take your Bibles with me today and turn, please, to Mark 7. I am going to be preaching a topical message today related to, as it were, the new year. This week begins a new year, and indeed it begins a new decade. There's nothing inherently special about a new year anymore, or even a new decade, a new century, uh, anymore then there is anything special about any particular holiday and birthday. There are days, another day like any other day, uh, not special in itself, but rather it is made special by the particular meaning that we give unto it. And this is not a bad thing at all. In, in fact, it's a rather good thing. Humans need memorials. We need points of decision we need beginnings and endings. These give us points of reference. These give us goals unto which to strive. They're needful. They're important things to, to human nature. And New Year's tends to be just such a time. It's a time to grant ourselves a perspective on what has gone before and a perspective on what we would desire to, to, to see ahead. And this morning, I'd, I'd like us to do such a thing for our church today. It's important that we be a church of balance, a church which loves what God loves and hates what God hates, a church which emphasizes that which Christ emphasizes, and a church which offers grace toward that which is otherwise. And the spirit of our exhortation, as it has rested upon my heart for a little while now, is an interaction that we find between Jesus and Martha and Mary in Luke 10. And in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, the Bible says this, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she uh, had a sister named Ma uh, called Mary, excuse me, <coughs> which also sat at Jesus' feet, and heard his words. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We find a circumstance here where Jesus is in a certain village, which we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture as to where Martha and Mary lived is most certainly the village of Bethany. And there a woman named Martha received Jesus into her house and she sought to host the Lord along his journey. So Jesus enters into the house and naturally his disciples would be with him. We know uh, likely of the 12. We don't know how many others, but he begins to teach as he was characteristically do, as he would characteristically do. And, and it is in this that we find the presentation of a contrast. Jesus is teaching, and while this is going about, Martha is busy serving. No doubt there was much to do, even if only Jesus' 12 were with him in the house. And then Martha had a sister named Mary, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. And this frustrated Martha because she was bearing the load of the work 
serving the others while her sister was not, while her sister was in, in her, by her perception perhaps being negligent and rather than helping Martha was listening to Jesus' teaching. So frustrated was Martha with this circumstance as it played out that she appeals to our Lord and to his opinion in this matter, asking, dost thou, uh, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? And then she appeals to him, bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus, you're here. You are a moral authority. They recognized him as a moral authority. And she says, there's something wrong here. There's something going on here that is wrong. I'm working and she's not. And whatever perception Martha had of that, she's being lazy, she's being negligent. Bid her that she help me. Use your moral authority, Jesus, to compel her to help me with my serving and with the work that is at hand. And Jesus' answer is, is very gracious, but also very direct. He tells her, Martha, you're, you're careful. That means full of cares in the same way that we would see in Philippians 4. Be careful for nothing. The idea of being full of care, being anxious or, or, or full of cares. She's, he says, you're full of cares and you're troubled about many things. Whether this be only the cares of the day, whether this be uh, her focusing upon the, the things that needed to be done, the logistics of having that many people in her house, uh, perhaps the overwhelming nature of being a hostess to that many, or whether Jesus was, was piercing into a deeper element of her heart and her character, whether she was a woman who was naturally full of cares and naturally troubled about many things, so that it was not just Jesus being there, but on any given day there was a lot that was on her mind and she was particular and she was, whether or not that was the case or whether it was just this particular instance, we do not know. Of course, Christ did and Martha's heart was no doubt touched with that. But what we do know is that this statement, though gentle and loving, was indeed a measure of rebuke, wasn't it? Jesus says, yes, Martha, there is much to do. Yes, you're careful. Yes, you're anxious about many things. There's always something to do, in fact, isn't there? There's always something to do. There's always something to worry about. I've been struggling with that a little bit this winter, and I don't know why. I was thinking about it just last night. We've got a, a, a boiler and a hot water heat system, and I purged it this year, and, and uh, I've learned a lot more about it in the last few years, and I replaced a few parts this year, and things are running great. But for all of that, for some reason, I can't get that boiler out of my head. Like I'm laying there at night and I'm thinking, is, is it working? Is it on? Are things, you know, you listen for the pipes to expand and, and it, it, it's on my mind and I don't know why. It, it, it's something that I'm anxious about and I don't need to be, but I am and I, I can't understand it. But we're kind of, you know, we can be anxious people, can't we? Something that just kind of grabs a hold of your mind and won't let go. Something that, that, that's just always there and, and you're so particular about it and it bothers you if it's out of place or, or, or it needs to be just so and... and, and and this was what Martha was at least going through at this moment. There was, there was something to do. There were things to do. And she wanted help. And she was being careful. She was being anxious. But Jesus says, Martha, you're careful. And you're troubled about many things. But one thing, he says, is needful. There are many things to do. There are many things that are, are, are important to, to greater and lesser degrees. But one thing is necessary, needful. And Mary, he says, has identified it. Mary has chosen that good part. 
And Martha, that won't be taken away from her. Mary is learning of eternity. Mary is investing in eternity. And what she has identified is that which is truly needful. She set aside that which is not, not that it's not important, but it's not the necessary thing. She set aside those things which are not necessary for the one thing that is. And this is the spirit of my exhortation today. That as we step into 2020, we do so with a determination to pursue that which is needful. That which exhibits the clear manifestations of the Spirit of God as expressed in the Word of God, our only absolute source of truth, our only anchor to this world as it exists. And as I mentioned, this exhortation is primarily uh, going to uh, take, take a, a form of Jesus' teaching in Mark 7. And what we're going to see here is that we be careful that we don't allow that which we deem to be important to override that which Christ says is needful. That we be careful not to allow our perceptions to overwhelm what Christ has taught. Our opinions to overwhelm what Christ has said. Our desires or even the working out of Christ's teaching to overcome the essence of his teaching. And this is something that takes a constant renewal. It's a constant renewal in our lives that we don't get lazy, that we don't get apathetic, that we don't uh, lose sight of what is needful. Because we can become like Martha, just get a bit cumbered about. Even serving, even doing good things, even desiring right things. But lose the plot. Lose the focus, lose the point, lose the direction, lose that which is needful that thing which shall not be taken away under, under all of the stuff that the layers that we can add whether that's to our Christian life whether that's to our material lives whether that's to our interactions there are certain things which matter but only as they don't conflict with those things that matter more no doubt it was important that Martha and Mary take care of the house, be good, uh, be hospitable. And those things are important, but only to the degree that they don't overwhelm that which matters more. Certain things matter, but must be made subservient to things which are more needful. And this is a difficult topic to explore because it drives to the heart of our own intentions, our own perceptions, our own desires. But if we're going to be a strong and vibrant church going into 2020... These are the things that we're going to need to consider. And so I ask you to be in Mark chapter 7, and that's where we go this morning to consider this teaching. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Then came, uh, then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. So we come into a time in the life of our Savior. We know not exactly when, but we find in this passage a controversy between the Pharisees and certain scribes and Jesus. So the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the more conservative, of course, within the Judaistic tradition as opposed to the Sadducees, which were the, the theological liberals of the day. And so these Pharisees and these scribes are interacting with Jesus, and these religious leaders have come up from Jerusalem, and they take issue with the fact that some of Jesus' disciples were eating bread with hands that had not been washed. 
So in the eyes of the Pharisees, they were defiled. And the way this would go is of such that they said, if you, if you touch food, even food that was kosher, right? Even food that was right with defiled hands, you have thus defiled that food. And then by, by, by putting that food into your body, your defiled hands have defiled the food and thus the defiled food has defiled your body. Therefore, you are, you are in a state of defilement of sin. You're in a state of sin because the food has defiled your body because the food was defiled by your hands because your hands were unwashed. All right? And that's, that's the, the issue at hand here. So they found fault. The scriptures express to us why this is in verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. So the Pharisees, and indeed all the Jews, the scriptures tell us, did not eat unless they washed their hands. They can't wash their hands. They would rather not eat than eat with unwashed hands. And here we find the key to this action, holding the tradition of the elders. Jewish tradition laid tremendous stress upon these washings, and Jewish tradition was held in the highest of regard within the culture at this time, so that the application of the law of God held as much sway. Let me say that again. The application of the law of God held as much sway in the minds of people as did the words of God themselves. The traditions of the elders were those things which the elders, desiring not to eat food that was defiled, and of course there was an enumeration of those in the Old Testament, then said, well, if I don't wash my hands, then the food is defiled. Therefore, there is an added layer of defilement. And lest we defile our food, we are going to take these added precautions. And so they took some applications of the word of God and they elevated them to the level of the word of God itself. And this was not uncommon with the Pharisees and the scribes, was it? Mark, Mark explains here, except a Jew had washed when they come in from the market, having bought for that day the meals, their daily bread, they simply would not eat. And then Mark explains that this was one of man's traditions and one of the, the traditions of the elders in place in regard to cleanliness and defilement along with many others, right? He gives some examples of the many others here. He says, many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. So they had to wash their, cu their cups and their pots and their vessels and their tables. Now, as we consider these traditions, I don't think any of us would say that these are on their face bad, right? As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why as we look throughout history and you see the, the, uh, the nature of, of illnesses as they swept through various lands, oftentimes Jewish communities did not suffer the same tremendous amount of illness uh, when the plagues would come through as other communities because the Jews had these tremendously helpful traditions of cleanliness, right? And so they would not have the same degree of, uh, of issues in their communities. We, we know the importance of washing your hands, especially around cold and flu season, right? You wash your hands. We've got uh, the alcohol... Um, uh, hand sanitizer, that's what it's called, right? We've got the hand sanitizers all over the place in this building and tissues all over the place so that we can be clean, so that when we're uh, uh, shaking hands with people, we can then sanitize our hands, hopefully before, not just after. And, and that way we're not spreading germs to everybody, right? We help our children learn how to cough and cover your mouth when you cough and far better even than this, do this so that you're not coughing in your hand and then touching everything, light switches and nastiness, so that we're all not getting sick. 
Cleanliness is a good thing. Cleaning one's hands, cleaning one's vessels. It's important to wash our dishes, right? You don't want to not wash your dishes. Someone comes over to your house and they find specks of food all over your dishes. It's not going to be all that uh, um, inviting to eat on those dishes. Cleaning the table upon which you eat, a really, really good thing to do. I always know when one of my children has been eating at my spot at the table because I'll, I'll, I'll get there and I'll sit down and I'll put my elbows on the table and they'll kind of stick. And I'll have to kind of yank them up and I'll say, oh yeah, my children probably had, had their, their peanut butter and jelly at my spot or the peanut butter and honey at my spot at the table at lunch because here's dinner and, and you know, we typically wash the table particularly after dinner because that's the end of the day and whatnot. And that table needs it at the end of a day. It's very important that it gets washed at the end of the day because that table can get pretty cruddy. But the question that we consider today is, does a rejection of a measure of wisdom inherently imply defilement? Does the traditional wisdom in relation to that which is temporal and material deserve, if I may use the term metaphorically, a place at the table as it relates to spirituality? Or can one be spiritual while simultaneously breaching those traditions which have been put in place for reasons of both practicality and propriety? Within the context of our account, these questions are brought to the forefront with a question asked by the Pharisees and scribes to our Lord. So we have seen the, the, the foundation of why the Pharisees and scribes are troubled. Then they ask this in verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now the question asked is quite simple, right? Why don't your disciples walk in accordance with the elders' traditions? They're eating with unwashed hands. That is wrong. And that's the idea. This is wrong. And we know that that's the idea because of the nature of how they ask this question. Even the very word there that I give you, the word for asked, eperotao, We'll talk about that in just a moment. Remember what we just read in verse 2. It's not that these Pharisees and scribes are curious. This is not a question in the sense of Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and he asked Jesus questions and he was legitimately seeking answers. That's not the flavor of this word. That's not the flavor of this interaction. Much to the contrary here. This is a question in the sense of an authoritative or accusative demand. This is them standing over Christ and his disciples and saying, why aren't you? Not, excuse me, may I ask you, why aren't you? Right? There's a big difference between the spirit of those two. And, and this is how this word is always used in the Greek. And I've traced this word before. And I want to uh, uh, create the connection to where I brought this word up because it was earlier in our First Timothy series, in First Timothy chapter 2, that we saw this word. And it strikes to the heart of, of an interpretive passage, which I think is very important, which is why I want to make that connection here today. Allow me to take a few moments to connect these dots. Back in First Timothy chapter 2, we spoke about the nature of women speaking in the assembly, Right? and the idea of women being silent in, in the assembly. In that passage, Paul made it abundantly clear that women are not to have an, a role, a role of, of authority or teaching within the church. And as we considered this teaching, we then went to 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that exhortation that women keep silence 
in the church. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for, the, for women to speak in the church. Now recall when we put these verses into context, the idea of keeping silence in the church, we connected directly in regard to the nature of speaking in tongues. That the entirety of 1 Corinthians 14 is speaking about all of the, the elements regarding speaking of tongues in the church. And uh, Paul had even said earlier in the chapter, if a man wants to speak in tongues but he does not have an interpreter, let him keep silence. And he uses the exact same phrase that he uses of women here, let him keep silence in the church. And then he comes to women and says, let women keep silence in the church, saying that as a blanket statement, and again, we're not talking about tongues today, we're not, we're not affirming tongues in the church, that's a, a sermon for another day, but as it related to that context in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, men, if you want to speak in tongues but you have no interpreter, keep silent. And women always keep silent. In other words, women did not have the right to speak in tongues in the church. They did not have that right in the church, just as men that did not have an interpreter did not have the right to speak in tongues in the church. Okay, so that was that idea there. Uh, and, and far from any sort of authority or teaching role in the church, women were not to usurp authority. They were not to teach. And as we drew the limits of this, highlighting that it doesn't mean women can't speak at all or even contribute at all, but rather that the context speaks of a measure of authority in the church, we sought to reconcile that concept with verse 35, that if a woman will learn anything, that she is to ask her husband at home. And I told you at the time, that's when I brought up this word, ask. And I told you that every time we see this word ask used in the New Testament, this particular word for ask, there's several. When you see this Greek word, eperotao, we are not speaking of a humble inquiry. This is not somebody coming up and saying, can I ask you a question looking for your authority to, to, for you to pour your expertise, your knowledge, and your authority into their inquiry? Much to the opposite, this is an authoritative or accusatory demand. This is me standing over my children saying, who put too much toilet paper in the toilet? Or that one just came to mind because that one's like every other day, right? Right now, that's, that's the season of life, right? This is, this is an authoritative question, right? This is not me saying, excuse me, children, can I just ask you? I, I was wondering about this. That, that's not it, right? This is me exercising a measure of authority and demanding a response. Who did this? I want to know. I am using, I am invoking authority. That's what this word speaks to. Invoking authority, appealing to my own authority to expect an answer from you. It's the same word of, of, when the Sanhedrin were, were interrogating the disciples in the book of Acts. Uh, they were not just going up to the disciples and saying, hey, you know, can I ask you a few questions about this Jesus guy? They were saying, how dare you, right? I, I demand a response. I demand an answer from you. And that is what this word means. And I bring you to this passage to, to formulate that link here. So, so that gives you perhaps a little more understanding of where I, where I want to go in, or where I've taken you before in that passage. That if a woman has an authoritative thing to say, if she needs to make a demand or, or, an, or an, an inquiry based upon authority, if there's something wrong in the church that she feels like it needs to be called out, uh, if there is some measure of, of, um, of a correction to doctrine that needs to be stated, that is not her right in the body. 
if she would ask anything, if she would, if she would bring this authoritative or accusatory idea in any way, shape, or form, she needs to bring it to her husband and her husband needs to bring it before the church. And that's the idea there. Not that she can't speak at all. And that's, that's the same word that we find here in Mark chapter 7, verse 5. So when the Pharisees and scribes are asking this to Jesus, we need to understand right away that this is, not a, this is a disingenuous idea, right? This is not an idea of them humbly asking Jesus for revelation here as to why this is, this is happening. This is them saying, how dare you? This is accusatory. Your disciples are doing something wrong. Why aren't you correcting them? Why aren't you on top of them about this? And so I, I hope that, that that link can help us understand better what is going on here. And it'll, I hope as well, help us to understand the passionate nature of Jesus' reply. So we would translate their question in this manner. Where do your disciples get off thinking that they can defy the traditions of the elders with their unwashed hands? Eating with unwashed hands. That's, that's the spirit of their of their interaction here. And Jesus' response is somewhat startling as we step into verse 6. He's not going to beat around the bush. He says this, He answered and said unto them, Well hath Esaias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, Ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. So Jesus immediately drives to the heart of their inquiry, which was, to put it bluntly, you are being hypocritical and judgmental. They're seeking to hold others accountable for their traditions. It's not that he didn't say your traditions are bad or wrong or evil or anything of the sort. He did not say your reasoning is unfounded. He simply said, you are holding my disciples accountable for your perceptions, for your desires, for your traditions. You are using yourself as the measuring rod by which you are measuring other people's spirituality. And this is a problem, Jesus said. This is not right. Jesus thus connects the spirit of their accusations to the same spirit which Isaiah rebuked in his day in Isaiah 29. But more than this, Jesus tells them that Isaiah did not simply speak of the people of that day. Rather, Isaiah, uh, God, Jesus says, Isaiah prophesied of them. He says, well did Isaiah, Isaiah, prophesy of you. He says this was not just him, his, him exclaiming his, uh, uh, the truth for the people of his day. He was prophesying of you. You are a fulfillment of Isaiah 29. The very conditions that Jesus was experiencing in his ministry, Jesus says Isaiah 29 was a prophetic recognition of what Jesus was going to come in, conflict, uh, in contact with during his ministry. Let's read that prophecy just for context. Isaiah 29. Verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Isaiah prophesies of a people who would draw near to God with their mouths, whose words would speak of honoring the Lord, but whose heart, the Spirit, had been removed far from God. Their heart had been removed far from God. Instead, they had imposed the precepts of men upon God 
and interpreted honoring God as honoring the precepts of men rather than honoring the precepts of God. Their fear toward God was not taught from God. Their fear was taught by tradition. Thus, it wasn't actually fearing God at all. It was fearing man. It was, it was honoring, reverencing the precepts of man rather than the precepts of God. It was reverencing something that was conjured in their hearts, their reasoning, their, their interpretations, rather than God and His Word. And in this, there is no actual fear of God at all. Only a carnal alignment with man's ideas in the name of God. With man's words in the name of God. In short, idolatry. All right? Now, this hypocrisy among the nation is not the prophecy itself, but rather the basis for the prophecy. So you notice there it says Isaiah 29, 13 to 16, but I only read verse 13. We'll continue in verses 14 through 16. Therefore, behold. Now, remember, that was, that was the condition of the prophecy. That was them. So he says, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. Remember, we're talking about the people in Jesus' day. That's, that's what Jesus just said. This is a prophecy of him, of them. I will pr proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us? Who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, He made me not. Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he hath no understanding. The prophecy is that because of their hypocritical judgmentalism, because of the spirit within which they, are, they have in this age, because of the spirit with which they would carry themselves into the teachings of Jesus Christ, that he would then proceed to do a marvelous work, he says, in them. He would, uh, because of this perspective whereby the nation would elevate their own precepts, their own ideas, their own convictions, the precepts of men, the traditions of the elders above the word of God, above the truths of God, he would do this thing whereby he would cause the wisdom of the wise, that being the religious among them, those who have derived and claimed loyalty to these precepts above the Lord, he would, he would cause that wisdom to be destroyed. He describes this in verse 15. Those who seek to hide their counsel from the Lord. These religious wise men. Because they follow these external traditions in the name of God, as they, they feel as though this makes up for the hypocrisy within which they rest. It's a funny thing about hypocrisy. It's the funny thing about particularly when we elevate our authority over the word of God and we live in this manner whereby we seek to measure other people by our standard. When we live in this manner whereby we seek to impose our convictions or our ideas or our interpretations upon the teaching of God, the teaching of his word and the manner in which others live their lives before the Lord. It's a funny thing that happens. We start to become uh, subconsciously comfortable with hypocrisy. And then we start to convince ourselves that we can do these things in darkness and that there's no ramifications. See, because I'm the authority, right? I'm the measuring rod. We say that God cannot sin, and the reason why God cannot sin is because He is the very definition of what is not sin, right? Sin, by definition, is that which is not God. And when I place myself in His shoes, then I can't sin, right? Because I am now my own measuring rod. And then others are measured by me. 
Therefore, they're sinning, and I don't see my sin because I'm too busy measuring everyone else by me, by my thoughts, by my expectations, by my convictions. And so I fall short. And then I get into this place where I work in the dark rather than in the light, and I say, who sees me? Who knows that? No one knows that. No one sees me. Why? Because I'm the standard. And Isaiah says, this is a turning of everything upside down. This is the pot saying to the potter, you didn't make me. This is the pot saying to the potter, you don't have any skill or understanding. And Isaiah says, this is what's going to happen in that day. And this is, what th this is the prophecy unfolding before your eyes in Mark 7. God describes their traditions as a turning upside down, an inversion of God's desire, taking man's precepts and putting them above God and thus turning everything on its head. In the name of God. They've incubated themselves against God's word through their traditions. And this would be brought to full light, Jesus says, in his time. We continue then in Mark, or back into Mark 7. Jesus says that these wise leaders, they were worshiping the Lord in vain because they were teaching the commandments of men as the doctrines of God. They were laying aside God's commandments and elevating these traditions of men, which, while some were wise, right? There's nothing wrong with them. There was nothing wrong with the traditions. There was nothing wrong with washing pots and washing tables and washing hands. That wasn't wrong. But they're not the doctrines of God. And as Christ continues, we find that much to the contrary, these traditions have compelled these wise men to ignore the, the better part, the thing which is needful. If I may bring it back to Luke, they're, they're, they're busy serving. They're cumbered about much serving, but they've forgotten to sit at the feet of Jesus. They're ignoring that which is spiritual in deference to that which is carnal. So he continues, verses 9 through 13. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such things like things ye do ye. Notice the, compet the competitive nature of these traditions and God's commandments. And notice as well, we are obviously talking about more than just washing pots and pans. Jesus has just gone to something much deeper, hasn't he? He has just, he used pots and pans as the external evidence that they are being loyal to their traditions. And then he immediately drives down to honor thy father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments, right? And how their traditions have now, not just in, how their traditions have superseded God's, God's word as it relates to ceremonial things, but how their traditions have superseded God's word as it relates to moral things. So we're not just talking about ceremonial here. We're not just saying, okay, pastor, I get it. I don't need to be so up in arms about washing my pots. No, that's not what we're talking about here, right? He is driven to the heart of the moral law now with honoring father and mother. He says in verse 9 that these wise religious leaders full well reject the commandments of God in order to keep their own traditions. Hence the previous idea that their traditions allowed them 
to have this safe spot in darkness. Their traditions were erected to incubate themselves against God's expectations. To give them, really, may I say it this way? Their traditions were erected to appease their conscience over their own sin. Because they did not want to put the effort, or they certainly knew they could not, in full measure up to God's expectations. And so they incubated themselves. They defended themselves against God's righteousness by erecting religious traditions. Jesus gives one such example that goes so far beyond the washing of pots or hands or plates or tables. He reminds them of the commandment in the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and mother. And he highlights their tradition, which states that a rebuke of one's father or mother, if it can be counted as constructive to one's parents, is entirely warranted. So if you rebuke your parents and then you say, it's a, no, 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 that wasn't a rebuke, that was a gift, mom and dad. I just gifted you wisdom. I just gifted you a perspective. So it wasn't, it wasn't dishonoring to you. It was a gift to you. And that's entirely fine within the law, right? That, they, they had taken the law and they had had this, pre, this precept of God. Like, this is, this is from God, right? Honor thy father and mother. And then they have incubated themselves against that commandment with these with wordplay, right? And so the tradition which had defined limits, and notice that as well, this semantic idea that they had constructed, it did have limits, right? You go beyond that, you go beyond the Corbin, you go beyond the gift, you go beyond that which is constructive to your parents and you're dishonoring your parents. And that's wrong and that's evil and, 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 and that's worthy of... of censure in the law. So it had limits. It did not warrant all dishonor. Only contextual dishonor. But Jesus says, in doing so, you have invalidated the spirit of my word through your limitations. And it paves the way for a subjective definition of what God has said. A subjective definition of what it means to honor or dishonor your parents in order to incubate yourself against God's righteousness. And this, Jesus says, made the word of God of none effect. What does that mean of none effect? Well, there was still a limit on what children could do. They would not honor, they would not dishonor their parents. Yes, but what is the effect of the word of God supposed to be? The effect of the word of God is, it's never been to manipulate action, right? If the effect of the word of God in my children is only to cause them to do good external things, then the word of God is not being effective because the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joint and marrow of the bone. The word of God pierces their hearts. And if the word of God is not piercing your hearts in those seats, and if the word of God is not piercing the hearts of my children and your children, then somewhere along the line, you and I are invalidating the word of God. We are making none effect the word of God through something. Hypocrisies, traditions, something is invalidating the effect of the word of God. Somehow we have given ourselves or those around us the means by which to incubate ourselves against the precepts of God while simultaneously thinking that we're doing right. Somehow we've done that. And when we do that, we make the word of God of none effect. And we need to be careful about this. 
And I want us to take careful notice of this particular example to understand that Jesus is not just talking about Jewish traditions related to ceremonial things, as we've said already. In fact, we'll see that throughout this, that that though Jesus speaks to these ceremonial imbalances quite plainly, his deeper message rests upon the numerous ways that these religious wise men and their fathers had taken the spiritual expectations of God and had twisted them and redefined them or narrowed them in such a way as to effectively invalidate them or to lend cover for their sinfulness through the external compliance with traditions. And this leads us to Jesus' final parable here. We read in verses 14 through 16. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus calls the people and he says to them, as opposed to simply speaking to the Pharisees and scribes, notice the change in context here. Uh, the, the Pharisees and scribes asked him a question. They demanded something of him. Jesus answered them, you're hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied of you. You've invalidated the, Lord, the word of God through your traditions. You've made the word of God of none effect. And then he speaks. Now he, he calls the people to him. And now he's going to speak to all the people, right? So we've just broadened our context. And he speaks this parable directly to the controversy of washing hands of plates of tables and cups. But we know that we can extend it, right? Because Jesus already did. We know we can take this parable of eating and extend it to all of these moral aspects. Because Jesus has already done this. And the parable is that nothing outside of a man defiles him by entering in. The only thing that defiles a man is that which comes out of him. And then Jesus invokes that famous phrase which indicates that he's speaking on a spiritual plane. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. This this is an invocation of faith. What Jesus is saying there is that you're not going to just be able to reason your way through what I just told you. You have to walk walk in faith through this statement. You have to ponder it from a spiritual level, not just a physical, material level. You've got to think beyond just washing of hands and bread. You've got to let this dig down to a spiritually rooted principle. Let him who has ears, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever you read that in Jesus' statements, start thinking on a, on a spiritual plane. Take, take that parable beyond just the material and say, what's the spiritual lesson? What is that thing here that the Holy Spirit has to commend to my heart that I can't just glean academically? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. You, if, if you just take what he says and you glean the academic element from it, you're not, you're not actually hearing what Jesus is saying. Because those that have ears are those who are taught by the Spirit, who are exercising faith, who are coming to this with humility and submission, seeking the illumination of the Spirit of God into this circumstance at hand, into this teaching at hand. So what did Jesus mean? The disciples were just as curious and as confused as maybe we are. And thank the Lord, there are times when Jesus interprets his parables. This is one of them. Verse 17. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And Jesus answers them in verses actually 18 through 23. 
Verse 18 and 19 says this, And he said unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draw, purging all meats. Jesus tells them, in this instance, speaking directly toward the ceremonial traditions as he gave them in the parable, the tradition of not eating food when you have defiled hands, unwashed hands, that there's nothing that enters into a man which can spiritually defile him. If you don't wash your hands and you eat food, it can certainly physically defile you, right? <laughs> there can be a, a great number of, of consequences to eating food when your hands are filthy, when they've got germs all over them, when they've got dirt all over them, uh, when they've got bacteria all over them, and that can cause a great number of problems in the body physically. But Jesus says it, it all, it's all a physical process, right? You eat it, and it's going to go, and it's going to be digested, and there's going to be refuse, and there's going to be used for energy. And all of this, it's a material substance processed by another material substance, and it doesn't go into the heart. It doesn't affect the heart. It just affects the body. It doesn't connect with the spiritual. Much to the contrary, Jesus says in verses 20 to 23. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these th evil things come from within and defile the man. So Jesus explains this spiritual defilement. And he says, if you want to talk about where a person's problem comes from, their problem, the problem is not actually external. The problem's internal. You're struggling with sin. There may be any number of external things that are tempting you. There may be any number of external elements that are bringing you to a place where it's harder to do right. But here's the nitty gritty. If you're defiled by sin, there's something wrong in your heart. There's something wrong in your heart. We've talked before about the fact that as it relates to temptation, it's all well and good to remove ourselves from temptation. And that's important. You resist the devil, he flees from you. You are simple concerning evil and you're knowledgeable concerning good and that's important too. But I can't go through life banking on the fact that I can just avoid every temptation, can I? I can't just cloister myself in a hill, shut those doors, and spend the rest of my life completely separated from all temptation so that I don't fall to sin. If I can't endure temptation, then there's something wrong with my relationship with the Lord. Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation taken me but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer me to be, to be tempted above that which is which I am able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Because Galatians chapter 5 says, if you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so if I'm fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and if I'm succumbing to temptation, James 1 tells us, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death, then there's something wrong with my relationship with the Lord. There's something internally defiled that needs to be rooted out. And this is what Jesus is saying here. 
He says evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications and murder and theft and covetousness and wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, that word meaning to indulge one's animal desires, the baser instincts or the baser part of our nature, the sin nature, right? To indulge the sin nature. An evil eye, speaking of seeking out evil, right? Looking for evil to do. The idea um, in Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The, the way of sinners, right? Those are people with an evil eye. Those are the people that are seeking unto sin. That's an evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness, you know what those are. And this list, Jesus says, comes from within a man. This is what defiles him, not externals. Now, a careful note on this. It goes without saying that external things such as the consumption of food, in no way touches the spiritual part of a man, although it can reflect something, right? If I'm a glutton, there is a root to that that is sinful. It's not the eating of food that's wrong. It's the excess. It's the lack of temperance that shows that I'm walking in carnality. I'm walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. But the consumption of external things in the context of ideas and thoughts and philosophies is different as well, isn't it? Someone might use this verse and see, say, so, and, and, and say something to the effect of, see, pastor, there's nothing from without that can defile a man, only that which is within, and so I can watch whatever I want, listen to whatever I want, see whatever I want. Well, wait a minute. When we're talking about food, which is going into a material process and is pro being processed materially and being uh, uh, discarded materially, and this whole, you know, the food's going to burn, I'm going to burn, my, my body's going to burn, it's all going to burn one day anyway. It's ashes to ashes, dust to dust, okay. But what happens when something is coming in that pierces into my heart? Right? That's different. So that's not what we're talking about here. These things do impact the heart of man, don't they? It's clear Jesus is not saying it doesn't matter what we interact with at all in this world as far as ideas and philosophies and such. There are any number of things which are in this world, what Paul calls the rudiments of this world, which do defile a man spiritually. In fact, these, very, these are the very concepts which Jesus is speaking against. Undergirding the actions, there's an idea of what pleases God, right? What it means to be right with God. And through the traditions of men, they were indulging those ideas and philosophies that were evil at the expense of that which is right. So we even see that here. That through these works of the flesh which Jesus lists here, among other things, they are being, the, that, that through their traditions, excuse me, they were overlooking these works of the flesh. They were justifying these works of the flesh. And so we receive a warning about how religious traditions can undermine and even invalidate spirituality. And Paul gives this same warning in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. He says this, he says, As ye therefore received Christ, the, Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this is the warning that I seek to draw today as we step into 2020. That we as a church be careful to discern the ways that we might have been diverted from Christ 
to some philosophy or tradition of men. And I'm not just talking about the philosophies that you're going to learn at the U of M. I'm not just talking about the philosophies that undergird the political debates today. What about the philosophies and traditions of men in our circles? What about the philosophies and traditions of men in evangelicalism? We need to be careful. We need to do a personal audit as to the degree to which we are holding people up to our standard rather than Christ's standard. Holding ourselves up to our standard or some other person's standard or church's standard or society's standard or group's standard rather than Christ. Whether it be within the body, whether it be without the body. Christ is our standard. Reason is not our standard. Rationale is not our standard. I can take the word of God and I can rationalize any number of expectations for you. I can rationalize why you should or should not wear, why you should or should not listen, why you should or should not watch, where you should and should not go. I can rationalize both sides of that, by the way. I can do that through the Word of God. I can do that, and people do every day. Go online and you can find hundreds of hours of content, probably hundreds of hours a day of content being put up uh, that, that rationalize perspectives based upon the Word of God. Christ is our standard, not the words of men. Christ is our standard, not the traditions of a church. And like with the washing of hands and of cups and of plates and of tables, when in their proper place, many of our rationales and our traditions are fantastic. I love the way our church is in many, many ways. I, I, I appreciate what our church is in many, many ways. I have my reasons why I'm up here in a suit and a tie. We have our reasons why we sing out of the hymnal we sing out of. We have our reasons why we use the instruments we do. And we have our reasons why we're not doing other things. And those are all fine. But we must always guard lest that which should be of value is so highly emphasized in our lives or our families or our church that we divert our loyalty away from the essence of what Christ has taught. Justice, mercy, truth, unity, humility. And we instead divert our attention to some other dividing lines whereby we judge others and impose our own perspectives and our own conceptions and our own desires upon others. To this end, and within this context, Paul continues in Colossians chapter 2. And in verses 16 through 23, he says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. But the body is of Christ. Notice the contrast. Those were a shadow. The body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, holding up something other than Christ, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, 
after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Therefore, Paul says, because we are complete in Christ, right? That's what we read in early in Colossians 2. Because you are complete in Christ, don't allow any man to judge you on material things. Don't judge one another on these things. Meat, drink, respective holidays or feasts or Sabbaths. Also, don't allow anyone to beguile you out of your spiritual reward by calling you to live some standard which is not reflected, not the essence of the teaching of Christ. It is Christ who is our head. And only by Christ can the joints and the bands which hold the members of the body together be truly established and knit together and increased. Your strength and my strength, the thing that holds us together is not the hymnal we use. And if it is, we've got problems. The thing that holds us together is not the clothes that we wear. And if it is, we've got problems. The thing that binds us together is that we all hold the head, Christ who is the one who nourishes the body and keeps our joints and binds strong. Only by Christ can the joints and the bands be knit and increased. And when men hold other things in that place, in the place of Christ, any other tradition, any other philosophy, any other ideology, anything that stems from man, anything that stems from his reason, anything that stems from his rationale, anything that is uh, connecting point A to B to C to D to E, and then we, we stand on E as if E is the foundation of what we are. Anytime we do that, we are weakened. We're not that doesn't strengthen the body. That weakens the body. Now, that doesn't mean I don't hold the E. That doesn't mean I don't live there. That doesn't mean I don't love that. But that's not where our strength lies. It can't be where our strength lies. We hold the head. We elevate the head. We seek to the head who is Christ. These traditions, Paul says here in verse 23, these things have a show of wisdom, he says. These traditions and these holidays, all these things, they have a real show of wisdom. They do. Will worship, humility, neglecting of the body. These are things, this, this is, this is a, a, a holding down of the flesh. He says here, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Yes, I'm not satisfying the flesh when I follow the traditions of men, uh, all the traditions of men. Certain ones certainly I am. But if I were to go into a cult of sorts and I were to bind myself to all the traditions of that cult, I would be denying my flesh. I would be denying my urges and my impulses. And Paul says there's a shadow of wisdom in that. But if we're not holding the head, there's no power. There's no effect. It's making the word of God of none effect. I am inculcating into my children or into myself a standard by which I am measuring myself at the expense of the uh, capacity of the Word of God. It is incubating me against the Word of God's power to formulate in me the spiritual man. And then it incubates our church against our power to be knit together in love. There are shadows of wisdom, Paul says. But when they're placed over Christ, they're just as much about satisfying my flesh as any other work of the flesh. And this is the warning today that as we enter 2020, 
as a church, we do so with a spirit of humility, intent upon holding our head, Jesus Christ, above all other notions, above all other philosophies, whether those be obviously worldly in nature and kind, or whether they be, as will become more tempting for those who are here today, philosophies, traditions, and thoughts of religious men that can be made arguments out of the Bible, but can bring us out of balance. And in doing so, fundamentally divert us and perhaps even subvert us from the essential elements of what it means to be a follower of Christ, as taught by Christ and his apostles unto the words of men. And the call is that we choose that which is needful today. The good part, as Jesus said, the better part that we be careful that we are not so cumbered about, even with those things that have a show of wisdom and will, in, in uh, will worship, a show of wisdom in neglecting of the body, a show of wisdom in humility, whatever it might be, that we be careful that we're not so cumbered about by those things which are by all accounts beneficial and certainly not to be cumbered about by sin, which so easily besets us, that we lose sight of Christ. So what could and should be unity in our church, our families, unity and fellowship between us and the Lord becomes contention, disagreement, discomfort, confusion, frustration, disrespect, distrust. And God forbid that this should come to pass. You and I aren't always going to see eye to eye. We're not always going to agree. We're, not, we're certainly not in the same place in our Christian walk, many of us. But are we humble, teachable, holding the head, which is Christ? Can you admit, as can I admit, that we don't have all the answers? That you might not have the full story? That you might not understand every angle or perspective? Can we look at each other in the eye and say that we are both seeking that which is needful. Can we sit together at Jesus' feet? Not to the neglect of the dishes. Not to the neglect of the floors. Just doing that which is needful. Keeping things in perspective. Keeping our priorities in order. Laying up treasure in heaven, seeking unto, the kingdom, seeking unto the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If we can do this, it'll be a great year for Legacy Baptist Church. It'll be a year where we will be knit together and bound together and growing together in love unto our Lord, progressing unto perfection as God has called us to be, bearing fruit as we would desire to bear. But it's only as we seek to the better part and it's only as we allow that which is most needful to be our highest priority. May God help us to do so. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.